Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by a very special guest, world-renowned thinker, author, best-selling author, uh, one of the prominent progressive thinkers of our time, former presidential candidate and a fighter for truth and justice, Marianne Williamson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for your generous introduction. So our country was divided prior to the pandemic. We had serious challenges, inequality, poverty, racism, militarism, climate change, and so much more. The primaries for a lot of us were very devastating. We were doing a lot of community work in our area, both at our community center and throughout the city, but we were also working on the Bernie campaign. Many of the people who were working on that campaign were also fans of yours and Andrew Yang's. Um, Biden was elected, of course, the pandemic hit, Fortunately, Biden beat Trump. Uh, We're unsure of what's going to happen in the Senate. But the question now remains, what do we do politically? What are the priorities for progressives moving forward? The COVID is as bad as it's been. Um, And people where we live need economic stimulus. You know, people are suffering greatly. Well, you brought up a lot of things there, but they all uh, deserve and need serious attention. But first of all, we, we all knew, uh, those that, that you're referring to, the general progressive audience. Some disagree with this, but many of us felt, I did, obviously you did, that the first order of business had to be that we deny Donald Trump a second term, and that we interrupt the free fall of American democracy, and that his winning would give us a pause in the action. It would give us a chance to reorient and to regroup. And I think that that's what we're going through now. I think that among us, there is the realization that just going back to the way things were before Trump is not anything near an answer, because the way things were before Trump is what gave rise to Trump. Uh, The massive transfer of wealth uh, into the hands of 1% of our our, uh, population, uh, primarily through a change in in tax law, corporate subsidies, and so forth. Uh, the very fact that you had trickle-down economics promulgated as this uh, economic theory, delusional as it is, coupled with the fact that the Supreme Court then uh, gave corporate money such permission to overwhelm our, our politics, has turned our government into little more than a system of legalized bribery, where it has now gotten to the point where it does more to advocate for short-term profits for huge corporate entities than to advocate for our safety and health and well-being. This has been going on for longer than four years. This has been going on for 40 years. And the interruption in the, um, in the trajectory towards this profound income inequality did not slow down much under Democrats. It has been the whole direction of our government. Anytime you see large groups of desperate people we should consider this a national security risk, whether it's in other parts of the world or in our own country. Large groups of desperate people become a petri dish of citizens um, vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. And I know that you yourself are familiar with this whole notion of where does terrorism arise from? Where does this kind of malformation societally arise from? And one of the main factors is anytime you have large groups of desperate people. 
By 2016, we had such large groups of economically desperate people. Not only were they desperate, but they were correct in their assessment that the system had become rigged against them. In 2016, there were only two candidates that named that pain and legitimized that rage, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And when the populism, the progressive populism of uh, Bernie was denied us by the Democrats, let us remember, then that rage, that cry of despair was only left with one populist uh, alternative, and that, of course, was Donald Trump. Right now, my concern, and I join with you in great relief and satisfaction, that uh, Biden won. But it's extremely important, even though I do think Janet Yellen was a decent choice uh, for, um, uh, for Treasury Secretary, it's like she still, what has been indicated so far, could be referred to as the best that neoliberalism has to offer. The best of neoliberalism is not enough. Incremental change is not enough. We need a massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity into the life of the average American. We needed that before the pandemic. Even before the pandemic, we had 40% of Americans who could not afford a $400 unexpected expenditure. We already had over 38 uh, million hungry Americans in the richest country in the world. We already had millions of American children attending schools where they don't even have the resources necessary to teach a child to read. We already had uh, millions of American children living in domestic and growing up in domestic war zones. We already had 93 million living near poverty and now anywhere Right now, about eight to 10 million people have been thrown into poverty since the pandemic, and we, it could get up as high as 20. But the crisis is not just an economic crisis. The crisis is not just the mental health crisis that emerges from all of this suicidal despair, domestic violence, uh, and abuse that becomes endemic of this kind of, uh, of, of desperation. We have a government that doesn't give a damn crisis. We have a sociopathic economic system that has taken our government hostage, one which literally, uh, literally stands for the idea that as long as corporate America is okay, it doesn't matter who dies. As long as Wall Street is okay, it doesn't matter who dies. And I was saying that before this pandemic, and some people said it was hyperbole. Anybody who says it's hyperbole today is not looking. Anyone who says it's hyperbole today should take a trip to Gary, Indiana, uh, Michigan City, Indiana, Benton Harbor, Michigan. I can take you through a whole stretch of suburban, small towns and cities that have been devastated. What you're saying, Marianne, resonates so deeply with us because we've been in an area that was a strong democratic area for decades. My grandparents, and I, it's in a future question that I'll ask, but you know, my grandparents were immigrants from Italy and the former Yugoslavia, came here at the beginning of the 20th century, ended up working on the railroads, then in the steel mills. All of those jobs have been shipped overseas over the last 40 years, or they've been automated uh, and our communities have been absolutely devastated by both Democrats and Republicans. And so when Democrats come into communities like Michigan City or Gary, Indiana, cities that have been run by Democrats for 45, 50 years, and people say, hey, just vote Democrat, 
it's not resonating with people anymore and they've had enough of it. And in 2016, I think Hillary's biggest mistake was to say to people such as you're describing, let's continue the eight years of success that we had under Obama. They were like, what success? I'm drowning here. And there there was an anger at the audacity to say something like that to people whose lives were in such crisis. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question about Trump supporters, Marianne. Where we live in Northwest Indiana, it's not Brooklyn, it's not Berkeley. There's no way for us to do organizing without running into maybe half of the people we encounter who have sympathies towards Trump. Um, Some of them, it's true, rabid white nationalists, racists, and so forth. A lot of them, however, very confused, not ideologically dug in. People who are upset because the jobs have been sent overseas, people who are rightfully angry at the Democratic Party and and don't know really where they stand. How do you think we reach out to progressives now? How do we reach out to Trump supporters? Do you think that that's something worthwhile to do? Uh, And if so, what do you make of, of any kind of effort like that in this context now? Well, we have to look at the phrase, reach out. There's a level on which some of the healing here will not be done on the personality level. You know, when you look at the, non, the philosophy of nonviolence as articulated, as devised really by Mahatma Gandhi and then appropriated by Martin Luther King to the uh, struggle for civil rights in the 1960s here in the United States, the idea of who we are is as important as what we say and what we do. And as, as Martin Luther King said, one of my favorite King lines is, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. A lot of us need to purify our own hearts. The self-righteousness on the left, the arrogance on the left, the anger on the left. Um, The right doesn't have a monopoly on character defects. All of us, particularly now, particularly after four years of Trump, There is so much toxicity that dwells in our own hearts now in terms of our anger, in terms of our frustration. And then when we project that anger onto people who voted for him, if you want to make sure you have no persuasive power with people, make sure you enter the conversation dripping with anger and arrogance towards them. So sometimes the reaching out should be, you want to have a cup of coffee and you don't even mention politics. Sometimes the reaching out is, would you, could, I, could I help you with some food at Christmas? You don't even mention politics. The deeper repair has to be on that level which goes beyond politics. Then on the level of politics, we have to do what was not done, which is part of what created this to begin with, and that is to create a genuinely compelling alternative for these people. Like you said here, every time you've mentioned their support for Trump, you have also mentioned that they did not find in the Democratic Party what your grandparents and mine found. Your grandparents and my parents knew a Democratic Party, the FDR, New Deal, genuinely standing for the workers, Democratic Party, that many of these people have not seen, that many of these people have not experienced. And that's the work of the progressives among us now, to genuinely build a humanitarian political movement, to move, to transform the line of our economic system from economic and corporate bottom line to a humanitarian bottom line, to articulate that, 
to stand for that, to set out the agenda of that, and then in whatever way we are called. Some people will be called to work on that within the Democratic Party. Some people will be called to work on that within a third party movement. I think a lot of those questions are in the air for people right now. Uh, a lot, I think Joe Biden's decisions uh, will make a lot of difference. And this is not our season, our, it, but it's, it's ironic, isn't it? It's not our season politically. We are certainly not appreciated by, by the right. And we've also been so sidelined and peripheralized by the Democratic Party even though, number one, our traditional home is within the Democratic Party, and number two, we have the people on our side. Yes. We are the ones standing not for fringe issues that nobody cares about. We're standing for issues such as Medicare for all, such as free college tuition, such as the removal of the college loans, such as fair taxation, such as removal of these corporate subsidies, such as a wealth tax that more and more Americans are saying, yeah, issues which, by the way, are considered middle of the road mainstream in Canada and other uh, European and, and in European countries. We just have to keep going. We just have to keep moving. We just have to keep talking about it. You're obviously doing your part with your podcast. All of us are doing what we can and we have to not care uh, when we're not understood. We have to not care when we're not appreciated. We have to just keep moving forward. We have to do what you and I are doing now, try to talk together, make our effect exponential and synergistic and um, our, our day will come. I have no doubt about it. I just, I just wanted to mention, Marianne, we are hosting this podcast today, but the reason we're actually hosting this podcast is because back in 2016, uh, Sergio Kochergin, who you can't see, who's uh, running the soundboard, him and I met in the United States Marine Corps uh, from 2002 to 2006 when we served in the same platoon. We opened this community center in 2016 in Michigan City for the very reasons that you mentioned, because right after Trump's victory, people said, what are we going to do politically? Sergio and I said, wait a minute, in a lot of ways, we actually don't live in a community anymore. Where do we hang out together? The shopping mall? There's hardly any shopping malls. The local dive bars? We opened this community center because we felt if we didn't dig in in a really deep-rooted way, to build roots, to have an institution and a space where people in our community can come together, break bread, watch sports games, watch a documentary film, have a birthday party. We were trying to mix all of those things together, trying to tell our left-wing friends the way to get, to get through to people is not to hit them with the politics right away. Hit them with some humanity. Hit them with some grace. Uh, you know, hit them with a favor. Those are the kind of things that unfortunately, you know, I think the Trump supporters do do quite well. You know, my neighbor down the street is a rabid Trump supporter. He was the first one to help our other neighbor when his fence fell down uh, when we had a, a, a windy day the other day. You know, those are the kind of gestures that I think will make a significant difference. So I'm really, really happy to hear you say that. Well, it's, it's simply true. I mean, we want compassion in public policy, but there also has to be compassion in personal behavior. And it's got to be a both and. It can't be either or. Yeah. And something that King and Gandhi also worked on. I mean, beyond, well, sa beyond Satyagraha. That is central to the philosophy of nonviolence. That as Gandhi said, the end is inherent in the means. 
angry, contemptuous people are not going to bring about the compassionate, sustainable world. And I think that's a big thing for all of us as we exit this year, because we have taken in so much rage with so many of us because of Trump, our hearts have been filled with some hatred. And hatred and anger are like the white sugar of political activism. They give you a, a sugar high, an adrenaline high, but then you crash. This is something we've got to be in for the long haul. And the nutrition for that, the nourishment of that kind of activism is not anger at what is, but love for what could be. And that's not just a platitude. That's, that's strategy. Yeah, I agree. So... As a combat vet, Marianne, I've witnessed and experienced extreme trauma in my time, extreme violence and trauma as a result. The Iraqi people, however, uh, endured much worse beyond, I think, what most people can comprehend. And over the years, I've met Iraqi refugees at anti-war events, events I was speaking at, and their strength, their resilience, and their spirit have given me strength over the years. At those times during the Bush era where I would sit there and go, my God, are we ever going to end these wars? Or those times during the Obama era when I couldn't believe that we were launching new wars in Libya and Syria and Yemen and beyond. And I would look into the eyes of the Iraqi people that I've met over the years, and I would think to myself, my God, what you've been through, not only were they willing to forgive me, these are Iraqi refugees who've been pushed from their homes, homes that me and my friends helped destroy, uh, family members who were killed that me and my friends killed. And for them to walk up to me and to offer their hand in forgiveness, to give me a hug, it, it has stuck with me as something throughout the years that if they could forgive me, surely I can forgive anyone because no one's ever did me wrong the way that, I, the, the way that we did the Iraqi people, number one. And number two, it, it's given me the strength to continue. And thinking of our grandparents and people who came over, dealt with World War I, the Great Depression, my grandfather, two Purple Hearts in World War II after leaving Italy, back in Italy, fighting in Anzio. These were strong but caring and compassionate people, and there's something in our society today that really bothers me, and I've heard you talk about this recently, and, and this is this sort of use of trauma as a way to sort of escape from public life, a, a sort of using trauma as a way to say, ah, you know, We've all been through so much. What can you expect? And I think of these type of people, and they're the ones who give me strength. And I, I just was wondering what you think about a, a level of maybe emotional, spiritual, and civic immaturity that exists in our, our culture today. Well, first of all, I want to say that the story that you just told and the way you shared your feelings about it was so profound and eloquent. And thank you. Thank you, not just on the level of, quote unquote, thank you for your service, but thank you on what you have done with that experience, where you have come to, what you were doing with it, and what you were expressing that we also need to hear. Uh, one of the things that I have uh, talked about quite a bit uh, since the pandemic began is that if we are honest with ourselves, uh, the United States today is not going through any hardship that we have not at least indirectly inflicted on other countries uh, through our own foreign policy. Uh, this is humbling us. Uh, the, the United States has never experienced ourselves. Well, we have at certain times in our history, but certainly nothing in modern history where we have experienced ourselves as vulnerable in the way that we are now. And this is humbling and it will change us. And I think that it can, if we, if we do our work, uh, change us for the better. In terms of the trauma that you mentioned, it's correct. Uh, Americans have become too precious. And when the Trump years began, 
I would hear people say that there was a syndrome that therapists would report, uh, Trump trauma, uh, that the whole thing was just so traumatizing. And this really bothered me for the reasons that you said. Uh, I would point out to groups of women that the American woman is not a, por a porcelain doll, okay? And our ancestors had to deal with trauma. You wanna talk about trauma? Let's talk about the people who walked across the bridge at Selma, who did not know whether they would send out the dogs after them or the hoses after them or bullets. You wanna talk about trauma? Talk about the trauma of the US Marine, such as yourself. You wanna talk about trauma? Talk about the trauma of the Iraqi people. Talk about the trauma of the people at Baghdad during Baghdad when uh, during the invasion, the fire starts coming down from the sky and there is absolutely nothing they can do about it. You wanna talk about trauma? You let's talk about the women who marched for women's suffrage and as a consequence were thrown into prison where the conditions were so bad that they went on a hunger strike and the, the response of the prison officials was to send men into their, into their cells and force metal contraptions on their necks to force feed them. So your point is very well taken. This is time for a level of psychological and emotional and political maturity unlike anything that we've seen uh, in, in the modern era as Americans. And part of that is knowing, yeah, these are sad times. These are tough times. And on a certain level, deal with it. These are traumatic and traumatizing times, but the psyche has an immune system, just like the, the physical body has an immune system. And in certain ways, what we're doing, I think, is externalizing some of the pain that we've just pushed down because on a soul level, on a soul level, we were in pain over the fact that there was so much suffering that we ourselves were unattended, not attending to. And sometimes you have a fever that burns up things that needed to be burned up. And that's what we're going through now. You're in trauma, I'm in trauma. If you're not in trauma over what's happening right now, you're not watching. Anybody who is not traumatized by the fact that 12 million people are about to be, about to be kicked off their, their uh, unemployment benefits, millions of people who honestly don't know how they're going to feed their children, honestly don't know whether or not they're going to be kicked out of their, of their homes. If you're not traumatized by that, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about your, your, your moral and spiritual state of being. And you've worked with a lot of traumatized people over the years, Marianne. One of the things that I've found that's been so empowering over the years is sort of a threefold sort of process. One is really good social network bonds and relationships that are meaningful and not superficial friends that you can call and really have deep conversations with, but also collective efforts that could be anything from feeding people to collective political efforts, to art projects that taking that internalized in, you know, individual trauma that we experience collectively, that both is from internally and collectively but channeling it into collective efforts. And I wonder if that's something that you've found has worked for other people over the years. Absolutely. What you just said is absolutely the answer. And I hope listening to you, Vincent, my hope is that you will continue, uh, that you will consider taking that next step. And I, I doubt that I'm the first person to suggest this to you and that you will consider running for office yourself. Uh, you're a man who has as many answers as questions and they're the right answers and you are living them. And the kind of message that you are communicating here is exactly the kind of message it needs to be communicated and politicized as an alternative to the American people. 
Can you talk about the responsibility that the American people have, and more so the American government, to the people of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Somalia, and, and beyond, that this doesn't just go, it's not, it, it's not good enough, in other words, for the United States simply to recognize uh, the destruction and trauma that we've caused. But I th- I'm thinking of this much in the same way that I think about reparations for African-American people, that in fact we have a deep debt to pay, and it's not just... Uh, a debt of truth or justice or so forth, but that we have to, I think, provide material support uh, for the people uh, in the countries that we've destroyed. Robert McNamara was the Secretary of Defense under uh, Lyndon Johnson. And not long before he died, he said these words about the Vietnam War. It was a terrible mistake. Now, if we had been an emotionally healthy country, the whole country would have shut down for three days and we would have moaned like women at a Greek funeral. We would have raged at our pillows. We would have pounded uh, the walls with our fists and gotten out what that meant. The people who had died, the Americans who had died, the Vietnamese who had died. And I actually think the realization of that killed Lyndon Johnson himself. Now, the fact that we did not do that, the fact that we did not allow ourselves to face the horror of what we did in in Vietnam, I believe has a lot to do with our failure to recognize what we were doing walking into the war in Iraq. There is a term that uh, one of the uh, former popes used, purification of memory. He said, if you don't atone and apologize for an error, then you remain unconscious of it when you're about to repeat it. And the same nonsense, the same craziness, the same grandiosity, the same delusions that prevailed during the Vietnam War years, prevailed during the run-up to the Iraq War. Something was so off that the American people bought that that the American people didn't recognize. This country did nothing to us, had nothing to do with 9-11. They didn't even have uh, Al-Qaeda there. Uh, uh, Saddam was a secularist. Saddam, if anything, kept a buffer between us and Iran. The fact that we bought it so easily. So there is so much horror for us to have to face. And until America is willing to look in the mirror, no, it's the same with slavery for that matter. It's too difficult if I, for me to get to the point of atoning, for me to get to the point of wanting to make amends, I have to first realize what happened. And our political system is based, instead of our political system being what it should be, and that is a channel for the deepest thinking a channel for the deepest education of what has happened and what is happening, a channel for the the highest thinking of which we are possible, uh, capable. In many ways, our political system has become an obstruction to all of that because our establishment politicians say, if we start telling people that we did something wrong, they will hate us or they'll think we're negative or they'll think we're unpatriotic. So no one ever goes there. I mean, there are people still to this day who think that the Iraqis should be grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And it parallels our personal lives. I have to go back to you, Vincent. You and those like you 
you have, um, I hope that you do not fail to appreciate this. You can speak from a place about some of this that someone like myself can't, because not only have you been in combat, you were in combat there and you know the Iraqis. And I, I think, and, I, and I, I know that you feel this way as well from things you've already said, the American people are good people. We're, we're decent people but there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there. And it's like the, the people aren't connecting the dots because the dots have been scrambled. And many of the dots have been scrambled by the media, by the political system, the political media industrial complex, which should be once again, the conduit for our forward movement has in so many ways become a conduit for um, a level of, of, of obstruction that is unsustainable. So. There's a level of alienation as well. With social media and the amount of time people are spending online, these forms of technology offer a great opportunity in the context of a pandemic. But one of the reasons why we opened the community center, on top of the reasons I mentioned before, was because of the profound alienation we saw in our society. The amount of time people were spending at home, in front of their phones, in front of their computers, and not face-to-face -face feeling people, you know, interacting in a real human way. I... What do you make of sort of what we could do about the social media? Is, is it a matter of just getting people out of the home? I know it's difficult right now with the pandemic, but let's say post-pandemic. Is it a matter of simply encouraging people to detach, get back out into the world, experience nature and human beings again in a different way? Well, we were social distancing even before social distancing was a thing. People would go to dinner with each other and they're both looking at their smartphones or their tablets. We were ignoring each other. We had built such mechanisms of defense against authentic relationship. So many walls around our hearts and so many ways to maintain those walls that the pandemic has simply made laid bare something that was already there. And that is an isolation that is unnatural for the human system. We are hardwired for community. The community center that you've begun reminds me of a, a community center that we began during the AIDS crisis called the Centers for Living. And it was exactly what you're saying. It was like there were people who had been diagnosed with HIV and we couldn't do anything about their diagnosis, but we could make sure that they were not by themselves. There was a place they could come every day. They could get fed. They could watch movies. They could get free therapy. They could get free massage. They could attend support groups. And it made all the difference in the quality of the experience. I think that this is one of many ways that the pandemic, as well as the Trump years, have enlightened us. Sometimes when you see something, you go, that's not what I want. And when you see, wow, bigotry, racism, isolation, conflict, it's when it's right up in your face that sometimes you realize that you actually do want connection and you do want peace and you do want deep relationship and you do want community and you do want love. And then I think the lesson of this time is that if you want those things, you have to proactively create those things and maintain those things, which is what you're doing with things like your community center. They will not happen of themselves because often the default position in individuals as well as a culture is in the direction of fear and not in the direction of love. And that is why we have to be fierce 
warriors for love, just as some people are fierce warriors for hate. Let me ask you about that concept of love, and it's central to your politics, it's central to your worldview, Marianne, and it's something... What upset me so much during the primaries and the way that the media tried to portray you uh, as this sort of unserious, hippy-dippy person who talks about love and and she wants to help heal people. And it, it, it says a lot about our, it says more about our culture and it says more about our place in history today as a nation than it does about you, that we can't talk about the concept of love in politics. I, I, I'm wondering how you processed some of that. I'm, I'm assuming you're thinking the same, my God, how could, this says a lot about us, but also how you maintain that strength and the dignity to continue that message even in the face of, of these types of attacks? Well, you know, I grew up in a generation where peace and love was coupled with anti-war protests against the Vietnam War. So when younger people have said to me, oh, you're just an aging hippie, you guys were just sex, love, and, love and rock and roll. I was like, oh, only part of the day, because the rest of the day, we stopped a war. What have you done? We did more to stand up to the military industrial complex than you guys have done. And if Bobby had not died and if Martin had not died, we had only just gotten started. But we did end the war, the civil rights movement, et cetera, much emerged from that. Also, as a student of history, Gandhi, that's what the philosophy of nonviolence is. That's what the philosophy of Martin Luther King uh, is. Martin Luther King said it's time for to inject a new dimension of love into the sinews of, of American civilization. For that reason, I was not expecting uh, the caricature. I was not expecting the projections onto me of my lack of seriousness, of, that I was some crystal lady wacko, etc. However, I realized that the people who promulgated that, the people who said, get her off that stage, the journalists who conspire with them in this political media matrix of neoliberalism, were not doing that because they thought I was silly. They were doing that because they knew I was dead serious. When they heard me say Latin America on the debate stage, when they heard me say reparations on the debate stage, when they heard me say economic justice, uh, environmental justice on the debate stage, when they heard me say that our entire healthcare system is, 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 is a cover for the fact that we have a system, a food, chemical, and environmental system that, that uh, inevitably, inevitably creates chronic illness. They knew that you let this woman on the stage a third time, she could be an inconvenience. What was particularly upsetting was how easily people bought it. That you would have journalists, the complete lack of journalistic integrity, ethics, people would use some silly tweet as an unnamed source, and how easily people who think of themselves as not so easily duped would allow themselves to be by that kind of a caricature. It was personally painful, and if I have any regret, it's that I didn't fight back. Um, I feel that that was uh, bad advice that I took, uh, because I should have turned that right back around and said exactly what was going on at the time, the, the impact of it, the humiliation of it, and the indignity of it was so great. But as I think that's also a lesson, a big lesson for me, because if you can't take that on, then how could you take on Vladimir Putin or whatever? So I, I get, you know, and I also get that you're 100% responsible for your own experience. After the campaign, 
it continued and it's like, excuse me, I'm not a candidate anymore. And I shouldn't have taken it as a candidate. I shouldn't have. But once I wasn't a candidate, I'll be damned if you're going to talk like that about me without my saying, excuse me, excuse me. And now I was thinking earlier today, it's funny, 2019 for me was the year of the direct insults. Now it's the, it's the age of the, of the left-handed compliments. It's hilarious how many people want to compliment something I wrote or said, but they have to, they have to condition it with, well, you know, she might be crazy, but, but you know what, Vincent, this is ancient to say about a woman who doesn't tell the line, she's crazy. I mean, this goes all the way. I mean, this is ancient, you know, just like there's unconscious racism, there is unconscious uh, anti-Semitism, there's unconscious misogyny. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I'm like you. I'm, I've got my eyes on something so much bigger than any of that. Yeah. And what happened to me personally, look what, after what you've been through, Vincent, much more than what I've been through, you could use it as an excuse for the rest of your life not to rise up. And instead, you're using it as grist for the mill. You're using it as, as information. And I just want to be like you, because what I went through, you, you, and I'm, I'm aware, you talk about what the people in Iraq went through. What did I go through? So they threw some tomatoes at me. So they embarrassed me. You know, what I'm, I've always been clear. What is that compared to what the women's suffragettes went through? What is that compared to what people in the civil, in the civil rights movement uh, went through? So um, I do not, I'm not so precious as to want to take that forward as an excuse not to speak my truth or show up as best I can. What do you think your role is today, Marianne? We have... In other words, I speak with people all the time and I ask them, do you feel a, a sense of individual or collective responsibility? Something I ask someone such as yourself who has, I think, a larger platform, who has a certain amount of influence is, do you feel a certain collective responsibility that even on the days when you might want to give up, you say to yourself, you know, I can reach millions of people and because I have the ability to do that and because of the state of this country right now in the world... I feel that I absolutely should and have to do that. I mean, is that something that keeps you going today? What is the sort of fire within you that maintains this strength and, and this ability to fight? That message has grandiosity in it if I talk to myself that way. And I don't talk to myself that way. Uh, I, I believe we're all special and none of us are special. And I think the best advice is get over yourself. Um, I don't think any of us are indispensable. Um, that's not who I am. I want to be a better woman. Uh, and that's my goal every day. And I, anytime I start playing the violins, I say to myself, what I say to anyone else, drop the violin, get over yourself. And, and like I said, I was saying to Wendy, you mentioned Wendy on my team earlier, and I was saying to her earlier how, how lucky we are uh, that I can work, that I can uh, pay my rent. I, I, I'm not, this is not a time. Uh, no, no, this is, I, I'm, I'm very aware. And so I just want to, um, I do, I, I, you know, my father used to say, live your life so that you're used up. Live your life so that if you were, you are a, a, a rubber band, it's, it's taut. 
And I don't know, you know, right now I have a podcast. Right now I'm talking to you. I'm grateful for opportunities like this. I have a podcast. I, I, I'm living where we're all living. Uh, you know, whether you see it in religious or spiritual terms, God used me, or in secular terms, I think we all just want to feel that whatever skills we have, whatever talents we have, whatever abilities, whatever information we have, might be when pooled with others, helpful. Who do you, the, the last question I have for you, Marianne, is who, who gives you strength today? Who do you look to for inspiration? Are there particular figures or campaigns or even projects, and they could be local or national or international in scope, but I'm interested in the kinds of projects or people that you would maybe even want to highlight here today that do give you strength and hope, uh, or the, the kinds of projects that you simply would like to highlight because they're doing really good work. Well, the first uh, thing I'd like to highlight, but it's not like anyone doesn't know, and that's anything that has to do with feeding people right now, feeding America, anything that that's the one I looked around and that's the one where I've been sending donations, but I think everybody can find their own. I think I would want people to realize that hunger is a serious issue in this country. We no longer have starvation in America, but we have serious hunger. And to be honest, the way it's going now with the failure to give any more direct cash relief, this is an urgency that, that I, I believe right now, let's, let's answer to this moment. So the, the hunger organizations right now, I think are really important in whatever way that we can. Um, you know, I, I, I love journalists uh, and thinkers like Matt Taibbi is someone that I listen to very closely. Um, look, there's some, there's some good people out there, but I, I, at this point, I don't think it's about data collection. We all know what's happening. At this point, I think it's about finding courage and clarity and calm. I think it's those personal aspects of character more than accumulation of data that paves the way forward at this time. So my answer to you more than anything is that I look to my own meditation practice. I look to my own prayer practice. I look to my own communion with the God of my understanding. Um, that I believe, I know that I'm reading what I need to read. I know that I'm, 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 I'm on social media, I'm on, on the news, I get what's going on, but that of itself is not enough. The issue is you know, that we be prepared as vessels, which you are. You know, you've been through very traumatizing experiences and you can speak about them calmly in a way that people can understand. Um, we know what the new way looks like. We just need to keep doing what we're doing. And I think when I look at something like your own podcast, stay the course. And that's what we all need to do, stay the course. And uh, as I said earlier, long-term, we, we, the United States is like a huge ship and it's headed for a hurricane. And it must turn around or the turbulence of the storm could damage the ship and, and genuinely harm its inhabitants. We, we defeated Donald Trump, that was number one, but that was just the first step. And I believe that each and every one of us has a role to play. 
Each and every one of us has a role to play. That's what citizenship is. Each of us has our own unique talents and abilities. Each of us has our own beat, just like the cells in the body. Some are assigned to the bones and some are assigned to the blood and some are assigned to the heart. You're assigned to Indiana. You're assigned to man, I'm assigned to woman, I'm assigned to Washington, I'm at some of are assigned to Christianity, some are assigned to Hinduism, some are assigned to gay, some are assigned to straight, some are assigned to North America. You know, it's it's just to live within the space that you already inhabit with as deep a commitment to service and compassion as you can. I don't think there is anything. Thank you for saying that, first of all. And second of all, I, I can't thank you enough for taking your time to come on our small little podcast from Michigan City, Indiana. And if we do make it out on the other side of this, I don't know how we can make it happen, but to have you come to our area with the kind of message that you have, uh, Marianne, which I think is the message for people living in places like the Rust Belt, for people living in places that have been devastated by the last 40 years of neoliberal policies, if we just hit people with the politics without a deeper spiritual communal message, I do not think we will achieve what we need to achieve. So thank you is the best thank way you. I could say that. I hope that that will be a date and maybe it'll even be my coming to support you in your run for whatever it is that you may or may not feel that you're supposed to run for. Thank you so much, Marianne. And thanks again to Wendy for setting everything up. I will tell her that. Thank you so much, honey. Good luck to you. Thank you, Marianne. God bless. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you can become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.